Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Because law for me is a method that can lead to a variety of solutions, what we need to know about it is not the results, the thing that usually draws our attention, what is permitted, what is prohibited. For example, we need to understand how we reach conclusions in law. And for me, what was really important and part of why I wrote the book is that this method changes over time. That is, not only the specific solutions in law change, Once this was prohibited, now it is allowed, or vice versa. But the way we think about law, the method we apply to it, how we conceive of it, changes over time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Intellectual History channel on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. I'm talking today with Dr. Tamar Herzog. Dr. Herzog is the Monroe Gutman Professor of Latin American Affairs and Radcliffe Alumni Professor at Harvard University. Dr. Herzog is a legal scholar and historian by training whose work engages with early modern European history, colonial Latin American history, imperial history, Atlantic history, and legal history. Her previous books have examined the workings of colonial institutions in everyday situations, the ways individuals negotiate being members of both local and kingdom communities, how immigrants become citizens and citizens are transformed into outsiders, and the formation of the border between Spain and Portugal, not in political, military, or diplomatic terms, but on the ground by neighbors. Her most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2018's A Short History of European Law, The Last Two and a Half Millennia, published by Harvard University Press. It is a concise, not to mention brilliant, survey of that history. Welcome, Dr. Herzog, and thank you for joining us today. As I noted in our correspondence, I came to your work with a background in intellectual history, not law. It is my perception that the law is, as a rule, a subject less widely discussed in history of ideas texts and in popular histories in general than, say, politics or technology or philosophy, or science, which is not to say it is any less significant. It's just a guess, but I would venture to say that while many who are interested in the history of ideas could give a basic overview of those subjects, politics, technology, philosophy, science, uh, and to a degree the main outlines of those subjects' histories, I suspect many could not as regards to 
the law. At least I could not. Not before reading your book, at least. So I think that your wonderful, fascinating book fills an important gap in the literature. I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, both your training and the focus of your work. Uh, Thank you. Um, I had trained and worked uh, as a lawyer, as prosecutor, when I decided to go back to graduate school and do a PhD in history. I had always been attracted to the question how people think, how they view the world around them, and what shapes perceptions, actions, words. And history seems to be, uh, seemed to be a great place uh, to do so because it felt so foreign. It was so difficult to understand. Why did people do what they did? What were they thinking? Um, it seemed that their basic premises were so different than the ones we have today. Um, and for me also, uncovering the past became a little bit of a game. It's like doing a thousand piece puzzle only that in this case, you don't know what the final image would be, like we have usually with puzzles. The image only becomes clear as you put the pieces together. So in a sense, being a historian was like doing this game of puzzle making, maybe even a detective story, but there was no crime to solve, or at least not necessarily. So history allowed me to combine a passion for attempting to look at the world from the point of view through the eyes of other people, not mine, as much as one can, of course, uh, but it also allowed me to, to engage in this kind of a detective story that reconstructs what had happened out of pieces of information that can only answer some question but not others. What I like best about it as a historian is this moment of eureka, when I suddenly start seeing how the pieces come together, where they lead me, what the picture is going to be like. But the funny thing about this process, of course, is once the moment of Eureka passes and the picture emerges, it becomes so compelling that it begins to look obvious. So now you wonder how come you haven't seen it before you made the puzzle, how others didn't. So there's a moment of elation and it ends in disappointment because what you discovered seems so normal, so routine. But anyway, the reason I'm mentioning all that is, among other things, because I think that what is clear about all my work is that I'm a historian of questions. I'm not a historian of places or periods. I'm intrigued by questions that I want to solve. And um, I often laugh that people who read my work sometimes are disappointed that I ask more questions than I answer. But I think this is in my nature. I can't help it. But as much as as I am a historian, I'm also a jurist by training. And over the years, somehow because of the interaction with historians, I'm becoming more and more jurists. Because, as you say, I think law is often absent from the discussions, and I think for juries, this is completely unbelievable that this could happen, that law isn't considered a a central element of society. And with historians, it's quite clear. Historians either assume that law doesn't matter, that it's an excuse, there is this trope that people very often use of a gap between law and reality. But if they do consider the law, these historians, they tend to take it very, very literally. They assume that because it uses words, it's transparent. You don't need to know anything about the field. It's enough to read to understand what jurists are saying. So while the first group of historians kind of dismisses law altogether, the second uses it without really understanding at all what they see. So partly, of course, it's the problem of anachronism that even historians who study the past seem to think that the law of the past was the same as the law of the present. But another problem is really that 
I think people from outside the field of law don't really understand how law operates and what is involved in, um, in thinking as a lawyer. And what I would like to, to, to do in my work is actually explain to these historians and to other people how law works and what you need to know uh, about it in order to, to understand uh, what you see. I sometimes use the image with students, uh, and I mention it, I think, in one of my books too, of law as a soccer match. As uh, you are given the field, you are given an, uh, somebody who decides, uh, an arbiter that decides, a referee, what is happening. You're given rules of the game, but you don't really know who's going to win in a soccer game. And I think law functions in the same way. So in a sense, the obsession that many people have with the law about knowing what the results are is, is the wrong way to go about law because what really is interesting about the law is not the result, but how you get there. So in a sense, this is what I was trying to do in all those books that you mentioned. My first books that really cared about how colonial institutions function in everyday interactions. And then in other books in which I asked myself, what is citizenship? What is uh, the status of foreigners? How does it act, happens in everyday life? I didn't ask who is a citizen, who's an alien, but I was asking about how, which are the processes that lead us to classify certain people as citizens or aliens in law? How does it function? Who's intervening? What are the considerations? What are the techniques? What are the questions that are being asked in order to receive the answer, who's a citizen, who's an alien? And in effect, the same thing I did with the other book you mentioned on the formation of the border. I wasn't interested in telling the border, in staying or fixing or discovering the border past here or there. I was asking the question, how do we fix borders? What are the processes that lead to the fixation of borders? Who engages in these processes? What do they argue? What are the criteria? What are the questions? And I was really not interested in where the border passed in a sense. And I do all this, of course, much more explicitly in the last book you mentioned, The History of European Law, because after so many years of doing it in particular examples, in particular settings, I said, I really have to say something more general about it. So this was the, how the last book was, was born, which is the first book of mine that isn't based on archival research, but is based on the experience of teaching law, of uh, uh, studying and analyzing law, of publishing about law, and reading a lot, of course, a lot of the reading that I've done, that I thought it was time to kind of summarize and, and say something about what I think law and how it changed over time. Your book does a wonderful job providing a clear, top-level overview. So you certainly accomplished what you set out to do. I do think that what you said is true. Echoing comments I said earlier... It is shocking to realize that despite all of one's reading in the history of ideas and European history, one knows very little about the law, not just about specific laws, of course, but the law in general. Uh, it is not a, an especially familiar subject to most. At least that was the situation that I found myself in. So I think your book is an invaluable resource for people looking to come to a better understanding of this important subject matter. Uh, I thought we could begin our discussion of your book by trying to get at a top-level understanding of what it is we are talking about when we talk about the law. Could you give us a quick overview of what you think people need to understand about the law as a field of study? Put differently, 
what understanding of the law should people have that is analogous to the general understanding they have of science as a discipline that uses controlled experiments to confirm or disprove testable hypotheses? Well, I actually think that to some degree, uh, law and science are very similar because both concentrate on the question of methods. They basically tell you what you need to do in order to reach the right result, but they don't tell you what the result would be. In both cases, the result is always tentative as well. There's always the possibility that somebody else or even you will come up with a different and more convincing result in the future. So any result, even when it looks final, it's tentative. Some people would say, of course, that science and law do it on the inverse. In science, you do not know what the result is, though you might suspect it, you might want to reach there. You want, might want, for example, now to find a vaccine, but you don't know that it will work. You only know what is the right method that might lead you to confirm that it does or not. In law, you kind of do it on the inverse, especially if you represent the client. You start with the results you want to reach, and then you set how it can. Then you search how it can be justified by employing the right method. Because of course, if you don't employ the right method, you're not going to convince anybody—not your rivals, or not a judge—if it goes before a judge. But of course, not all lawyers are hired gun, and and many do research like scientists and do care uh, to identify the right solution. And like scientists, they use logic and experimentation and trust that if they follow the right method, they will get to a plausible result. Again, it's always going to be tentative like science. So for me to understand the law, the most important thing is to understand that it never prescribes a solution, a single result. On the contrary, what it it prescribes are really rules about how to debate, what we call rules about rules. There's always more than a single way by which things could have legitimately developed. Even if we believe that some are, results are more accurate than the other. Um, what society, of course, did is nominated judges that they decide among the various options that exist, which is the best. But of course, Jewish know that this decision, the decision of judges is not always correct. That's why we have appeal. But even when there's no longer appeal, we have given judges this authority because we want to terminate, to end disagreements, not because we think that they're necessarily, there's only one possible legitimate solution or the judges necessarily identified it well. This is actually how we can explain that courts change their rulings, even though the rule itself hasn't changed. They change the interpretation, they change the contextualization, uh, they change uh, many things, the rule itself in the case of the U.S., it's quite obvious. For example, the Bill of Rights hasn't changed, but what judges said it contains has changed over time. This is why it is possible. Because these uh, conclusions in law are never final, they're only tentatively final. This explains why, in fact, the law can stay the same and nevertheless produce different results. So there's something very odd about the way the law functions that we, it seems to be continuous, it seems to not change, but in fact, the one thing we know about the law that is constantly changes. This conviction that I have that law is really a technique rather than a series of solution got solidified not only while I was reading and, and from intellectual analysis, but also from lived experience. 
I have moved quite a bit between countries and continents. And as a jurist, people always told me that law is a national affair. That is, each place has its own laws and you cannot transfer from one place to the other and still be a jurist. But in my own experience, this is really false. Of course, the laws in one place and the other can be different, but thinking as a jurist really remains the same. I found this true, uh, even though I transferred, transferred from a system, initially I was trained in a system that relied heavily on common law, then I, I was a continental legal historian and now in the U.S., so yes, I live in Massachusetts. I might not know what specific law dictates, but my familiarity with the law uh, enables me to actually read it and know what it says. I know which debates it enables. I understand the categories. I understand the questions. Uh, because I'm a jurist, I might not know the specific solutions, but, but I can tell you that I, I, I understand it in a way that somebody who lived all their life and knew the solution wouldn't understand. How we proceed, how we argue, what are our points of reference, who's arguing where, so forth. So I wanted to write a book that doesn't speak about legal change in terms of different solutions society adopts to different questions, but showing how the implementation of all these dictates, all these solutions requires a certain technique and how this technique had changed over time. That is that law has a history that goes beyond the changes in particular solutions, but in what law itself is. So what does one need to know about the law? I think first, as I mentioned, uh, we need to know it involves a way of thinking, procedures for reasoning and experimentation. We need to understand that these methods, these proceedings changed over time. We need to understand that despite apparent continuity, change is constant. But at the same time, there is never a radical break. The French Revolution, for example, was the moment in history in which revolutionaries most desired to uphold the entire system, change everything, begin from zero. But even then, despite their um, wishes to do so, couldn't. There is something about the law that looks the same, constantly changed, but you cannot completely undo it. It has to be some kind of a process that is involved. You can't just discard it and bring in another law. The other thing I think is really important to know about law is that it is never really a national affair. So again, we tend to think about American law, French law, Spanish law. But in fact, law, because it is a technique and a way of thinking, it involves communities that really transcend borders. Experts of law read one another across national borders, and law is, in some profound way, very irreverent of political divisions. So today we say, yes, the law was enacted in the national parliament. It legislates for our country. But we know that what is legislated, how it is legislated, not to mention how it is interpreted as applied, really transcend this particular state because it's part of a larger debate among uh, jurists. So with respect to my own book, if I wanted, as I mentioned, to, to talk about how the techniques and not the solution changed over time, I also wanted to tell a story of European law rather than French law, English law, Spanish law. Many books do that, have a chapter on each one of the laws. Because I think when we do that, when we tell the story of law as a national phenomenon, we really betray the common features that in the, these individual stories have uh, so in my book, I really wanted to stress commonalities against a long tradition of telling the history of law as national, as separate, 
and even more so against the long tradition that deliberately insists on exceptionality and difference. I always tell my students I laugh that I have worked and, and lived in so many countries and all countries in the world think their history is exceptional. There's not even a single country that think that their history is, is normative. Uh, but of course, it means that there's no norm if everybody is exceptional. But it also means that despite these courses of exceptionality, there's a lot of things in common that we somehow in national histories tend to forget. In your book, you do a wonderful job of portraying law as either a living organism or maybe a better analogy is a community of living organisms evolving over time and adapting to one another. But you certainly do convey the nature of that community, of the community as a whole, not just the individual nations on their own. So even as you do show the individual countries attempting to find their own way as regards the law, the commonalities, the common space in which they are working, uh, the legacy of Roman law, is always clear. The art historian Kenneth Clark makes the point that in each historical moment, the most important matters transcend nationality. Uh, In particular, he is speaking about the medieval cathedrals. Mm-hmm. where even during times of strong nationalism, a German town wouldn't hesitate about getting an English or a French architect for their cathedral and vice versa. He makes the same point regarding quantum mechanics in the first mm-hmm. half of the 20th century. In matters of supreme importance, you take good ideas and talent uh, from wherever they come from. And this definitely comes across in your book, I was wondering if you could give us a quick historical survey of the development of European law. Uh, I think this could really help orient the listener in our discussion. I appreciate that it took you 250 pages uh, in your book to do this concisely. So obviously this is a tough ask. I apologize in advance. We will assume that the listener has a general knowledge of the history of Europe But at the very least, perhaps you could provide a top-level overview of Roman law, uh, then of medieval Christian law, and then of modern post-Enlightenment continental law. What are the distinctive features of each? Sure. So taking into account what I said today uh, so far, that for me, law is about a technique and a way of thinking, then as far as I'm concerned, part of the history of law in Europe, and perhaps I sometimes say perhaps it's the most important struggle in history that nobody ever, as you said, give enough attention to, is the struggle over who has the authority to say the law, who has the authority to decide what are the rules of society, both the rules between individuals and the rules of the relationship between individuals and the authority, and how is this done? So um, this is part of, of also things that had developed and changed over time in the history of European law. So, in fact, the story I tell is very often the story of how, how the struggle over the authority to control and to say the law and the means by which you act in law has defined the history of law in Europe. So very briefly, this is just to, to explain what I try to do in the book. So I begin the story of law in Europe Uh, with Roman law. Of course, I know that nothing comes out of nothing in a sense. 
to give a complete genealogy of things, we would always have to go backwards into a remote past. There is a field in history called deep history that actually wants to begin history with the caveman, um, and rightly so, because there is a build-up of experience, uh, even when there are ruptures. But of course, this is undoable to go back in time endlessly. So what most historians do, and I did too, is to seek to identify a point of departure and a point of arrival, and they choose it in the f as a function of the story they wish to tell, even though they know that previous developments were also important and what had transpired is very revealing. Uh, the choices of where to begin for historians is always have to do with what story you want to tell, not with the moment of creation, because the moment of creation can go backwards almost endlessly, perhaps even on when we descended from the trees. So, of course, there were binding norms and there were judges before Rome, but for the story I wanted to tell about laws and methodology as a way of organizing debate, as a process, I looked for a way in, in a way, uh, for the moment where these things crystallized, and this happened in ancient Rome, in Roman law. So Rome borrowed from other cultures, and developments in Rome were influenced by the relations of Rome with other people, other territories, but in Rome something happens. In Rome there is an accumulation of knowledge, experience, thinking, that produces something that is recognizably legal the way I think about law today not just a prescribed result, but a way to organize juridical conversations, set rules, how to analyze certain things. So what crystallizing in Roman law and what I think is the most important uh, thing to, to know about Roman law, there are many more things, of course, in my book, I explain how the process, how rights are being negotiated. But for me, the most important uh, elements in Roman law that also justify why to begin with Roman law is that in Rome, clearly, uh, you think about law as a way to adjudicate conflicts. It is a method to resolve conflicting interests, not by violence, not by arbitrary authority, acts of arbitrary authority, but rather through a process in which both sides debate before an arbiter, a judge, following a certain procedure which is agreed upon. So this is, in a sense, what we think law is, and we see it very clearly happening in Rome. Another feature that comes forth in Rome that we identify as legal is really the gradual separation of this process of conflict resolution from religion. There emerges a separate sphere of civil, not religious uh, law. Religious law continues to be important, but it becomes different. So if initially it's priests who take care of adjudication and the knowledge is secret, it's part of the knowledge as uh, priests, Eventually, in Rome, we start having other individuals who are not religious leaders charged with the task of identifying uh, solving conflicts, and their criteria become public and actually part of the big struggle in Rome. The first piece we have of Roman legislation, the Twelfth Table, are all about whether law would be public. Can people know the law or is it a secret? Another feature that emerges in Roman law, which is very important, is the growing prominence of specialists of professionals who specialized in the field of law, what we call today jurists, or in English mainly lawyers. These individuals start having a special training that is different than the training of other people, but we also start seeing the emergence of legal literature, student manuals, uh, in other important sources, commentary on law, uh, jurists answering questions about the law and so forth. So we start having a language to speak about law 
that we still have today. I mentioned in my book something called presumptions, which is which allows us to prove things we can't prove. A presumption is is an instrument that say we cannot prove a certain thing, but it's likely it happened, and therefore society allows you to presume this was the case. I mentioned in the book the most important presumption in Roman law that is still valid today, that a child born to a married couple is the offsprings of both partners. You don't have to prove it. This is a legal presumption because the uh, assumption is that it is usually true. We know sometimes not, but usually true. So if it's hard today, we can prove it. In the past, you couldn't prove it. So you assumed it was true. Another important thing is that in Rome, you start separating the legal question from the facts of the matter. That is, you identify an abstract rule. Uh, you abs- you uh, generalize. For example, instead of saying, you stole my horse and therefore you have to return it to me, you formulate a general rule, such as if somebody takes an object, he must return it to the rightful owner. So we have a process of abstraction in which we no longer solve a concrete case. You took my horse, therefore you have to return it to me. But we have a general rule. If you take an object from someone, you have to return it to them. So there is a process of abstraction, but of course then the collaratory is a process of concretization. Then from this general rule, somebody takes my object, he should return it to me. We can apply it to my horse, but we can apply it to many other things. This sounds very trivial, we take it for granted, but this was invented in Rome, actually. Also from Rome, we have this idea that there are legal institutions, for example, contracts. That is to say, again, it's a sort of abstraction that Roman jurists do. We know that each contract is different, but still we think that contracts in general share something in common, so there could be a law of contracts. There would be rules applying to all contracts, but there will be also rules that apply to particular contracts, and then to my contract with you. So, and this is really important because we start thinking about similarities and general rules and not just a concrete case. So Roman law, for me, is in in ancient Rome, is really a place where all these things happen. And as I mentioned, now they seem trivial to us, but they didn't exist before. So it is really the beginning of thinking about law the way we think about it uh, today. Uh, What is interesting about Roman law, of course, that this is the law of these Roman citizens. And in the beginning, it only applies to Rome itself, the city of Rome. But in the early third third century, when Roman citizenship is is applied throughout the empire to all citizens of the empire, Roman law extends. So we have uh, a projection of the law of one city, the city of Rome, throughout the entire empire because of the extensive citizenship. And eventually also a second extension of Roman law through uh, Christianization, the conversion of Southern, Central, Northern, Eastern Europe into Christianity. This happens because the church, the early church, as we all know, it used to be Hellenistic, but in a certain moment it become Romanized, at least this part of the church become Romanized, the, the, the parts that of the Western church, there is an Eastern church that remains Hellenized, what we call today Orthodox, Greek Orthodox church or Russian Orthodox church. But the Romanized part of the church that has center in Rome takes on Roman law as its own and actually continues 
to use it through canon law, the ecclesiastical law. Because of it, wherever Christianity is imported, Roman law is imported as well. So the church not only extends the influence of Roman culture, Roman language, Latin, and so forth, it also extends the influence of Roman law to territories that have never been part of the empire or under Roman influences. What happens next is really under debate. We know that the church continues to use Roman law, of course, changing it, developing it, and so forth, as always happens with law, as I mentioned before. It's not clear what happens outside the church. We have now grown proof that actually in many places in Europe, mostly urban Europe, but not only, even in England, actually, we have research now in Western England, Wales mostly as well. Uh, Roman law survives after the fall of the empire. But generally, the story people tell about the early Middle Ages is that uh, rural communities, at least, uh, were very small. And there they started to practice again some sort of a more primitive, primitive type of law, which was not so much thought of as a science, but rather was as a practical means to conserve peace within the community. So we have very small communities whose authorities, sometimes communal authorities, sometimes the feudal lord, uh, resolves conflict, say what the law is, as part of their duty to ensure that peace will be prevail, would prevail in the community. They either do it through negotiation or they do it through imposition, depending where and how. But really the question is how to generate, maintain and ensure peace rather than obeying preset rules or going through a, some kind of a process that we would identify as a legal process. As far as we can tell, this is what happens in all over Europe in different intensities, in chronologies, but more or less. And then uh, in the 11th and 12th century, there's a major change in European law. Uh, we have the growth of cities, commerce, the emergence of larger political units, whether they're headed by kings or they're Republican or a Republican government, intensified contacts within communities, and this system of local peace can no longer be sufficient. And we have a change with and, and kind of a return to this idea that law is about method and about ways of doing things. We identified this period as the revival of Roman law, though actually what was revived was also canon and feudal law. Uh, this happened mostly in Northern Italy, in universities, where law was being studied again, discussed by professionals. Again, uh, we have people who are professional of law, we call them jurists, and they retake these old debates uh, that existed in Roman law and renovate and adapt them to medieval condition. So uh, their work, we identify either as medieval revived Roman law, or sometimes we also call it jus commune, literally common law, because their feeling was that the law that they were discussing was a common heritage of all Christians and all Europeans. It wasn't a local law. And actually, the common law, the use commune, stood in opposition to local law, which was just restricted to one community. So there is a return to the idea that law is about practicing a way of thinking, not just reaching a good solution that guaranteed peace. These jurists who are trained in universities begin circling, circling around Europe. They become uh, involved in royal, republican, municipal governments. 
and the prestige and power of this new way of thinking about law actually becomes very dominant throughout Europe with the growth of government, commerce, relations between communities and so forth. It's very useful. And we start seeing the predominance of this revived juridical method throughout Europe, actually in England too, as I mentioned in, in, my, in my book. So, and, and uh, as kings and authorities began centralizing their, um, their territories, we have the foundation of capital city, growing of royal bureaucracy, so forth. We see the king using these juries in order to try to intervene in the legal order and say, um, actually, I am the king and I should decide what the rules of the game would be rather than having the jurists dictate the technology and the ways of, of doing stuff. Oddly, and contrary to perhaps our gut feeling, the clearest example of how this happens is in England, uh, though this happens also in other parts of Europe, though, again, like always, different intensities, chronologies, and so forth. So in England, we clearly see the appearance of a royal um, intention. This happens after the Norman invasion of, of England in the 11th century to actually intervene in the legal order and, and make themselves to some degree superior or provide at least channels to adjudicate conflicts. This happens, uh, the English, what the English monarchs do is, is uh, establish royal courts and allowing all the vassals to come. And uh, this is a gradual process in the beginning, not all, but theoretically, eventually, all the vassals were, were allowed to come to the royal court to plead their cases. This is why we call it common law. Again, because it was a law common to all the community, it was not local to a specific English community. Also in other parts of Europe, uh, and we'll speak perhaps about it later, uh, monarchs are trying to do the same. They're trying to establish royal courts and actually control a little bit the liberty of action of jurists. But by the 16th and 17th century, there's a backlash by jurists. Again, the most important example is England, uh, where jurists begin, jurists uh, in England, they call them lawyers and judges of common law begin telling the king that in fact he's not in charge, they're in charge. And they start saying that common law is a customary law that the king does not make. There's a very famous sentence in England. It's not that king that make law, it's law that makes kings. But we can speak about it uh, later on. For me, all this is, is important because it shows that there is a clear understanding of these actors, though we seem to have lost it, or at least in some, that law is an amazing resource and that the question of who says the law, who decides what is the law, and what kind of questions are being asked is are really, really important to the management of life. So while in the continent we have a system in which we have jurists who are trained in this way of thinking about law as a science, controlling the local administration, controlling the royal courts, and actually barring the ability of monarchs to intervene in the, loyal, in the legal order, in England, the courts, the, the monarchs uh, managed to institute a series of, of courts that become over time more and more important and intervene dramatically in the legal order, uh, bringing eventually uh, forth the prominence of, of common law.
whose common law was one among many systems of law that operated in England. There were local courts, feudal courts, ecclesiastical courts, not just common law royal courts, but eventually the common law royal courts become more important. It does, uh, and we can repeat, return to it later if you wish, it does uh, produce somewhat a different result in England and in the continent because while in the continent, uh, we keep very strongly with this tradition of how do you think about phenomena juridically and jurists are the ones who, who decide. In England, first it's the king and his bureaucracy, and eventually it's uh, judges. And uh, in a certain moment, the English king decides that he no longer wants people trained in university professional judges to be involved in common law, perhaps because they yielded too much power, and he starts nominating his, um, his trusted men who are not actually uh, experts other than by practicing law. And the law involves more about whether the king allows you to address his judges or not. So not so much a technique of what would happen once we think about legal problems, which is the typical thing that happens in Europe, in England. The question would be who can go to the royal courts, not so much what will happen once you go to the royal courts. So it's more common law evolves initially as a system of access to the court. I think the next uh, really important uh, development in European law is actually colonialism. I'd be happy to return to it later. If I said that because of the expansion of Roman citizenship and then because of conversion to Christianity, Roman law ex expands way beyond the city of Rome where it was created, with early modern colonialism, European law expands beyond Europe and beyond the Christian community. Not only it gains global prominence, but it actually transformed European law as well, because in order to be imposed outside Europe, uh, you have to start thinking about it as a de-Christianized and de-Europeanized law. Uh, you have to make it somewhat more universal. And there's a series of European Jews who engage in this task of actually converting European law into something we would eventually identify as international law or natural law, because only by doing that they can justify why they impose it on non-Europeans and non-Christians. Uh, but we can discuss it further. The next really important moment in European history of law, I think, is the Enlightenment, uh, when intellectuals across Europe begin thinking that their obligation is not to ensure peace, not to maintain the status quo, but instead propose ways to improve society. So these intellectuals, the those who, who we think participate in the Enlightenment, analyze institutions, traditions, and law, and thinking about cause and effect, propose changes that are based on reason and observation and sometimes experimentation. They look back to the past as, as a as a collection of experiments with law. They wish to break with the past, they want to improve the future, and of course this leads to revolutions. This is of course a very unfair summary, but what is important from the point of view of the law is that the way that enlightened thinkers think about the law is no longer part of a long tradition of juridical thought and elaboration, endless debates that were largely common across Europe. Instead, they want law to be the same as reason. And they argue that law should be made by reasonable individuals, 
selected to represent the community the nation in some sort of a parliamentary assembly. So with enlightenment comes the idea that at the time is completely revolutionary, but we take for granted, of course, um, that law should be made by the representative of the nation expressing the national will. It should be reasonable. And it's, uh, it's funny to think about it, but this contemporary thought that reason was one and unique, we all had it and we all employed it in the same way. So if we looked at the same equation, the same sentence and applied only reason rather than tradition or culture, we would get to the same conclusion, which I think we no longer feel this way. But because it was going to be made by the representative of the nation, because it only is guided by reason, then according to the enlightenment, you don't need a professional sphere of jurist or, or lawyers because anybody reasonable can reasonably interpret and apply the reasonable law. So there is a kind of a move against uh, law as a separate field that requires um, particular preparation. Uh, the French Revolution, again, is the, where these, express, these ideas were expressed uh, most clearly they had, French revolutionary had this dream or perhaps a nightmare, depending on how you look at it, of starting from zero, creating a logical legal system that would be transparent, simple, sure, easily understandable. It's, uh, I often think about it back to my uh, idea that it's a bit like the history of science. It's a bit like Descartes and his idea that I think therefore I exist to start from the basic and build on only by utilizing reason. The French nationalists also were the first to think about this system as national because it would depend on the will of the people as expressed by their delegates in parliaments. But while it would be national because it would be by parliament that is a national phenomena, it will also be universal because it's based on universal reason. So there's some ambiguity in the project. So on the one hand, it's the coming of national law the way we think about it today. The other and there is a universal bend to it. And some people say what basically enlightenment did is they exchange a uni universalism that was based on Christianity and revelation, which was a type of universalism Europeans had before, with a universalism based on reason. In a sense, this is what made the French Revolution so radical, and I dedicated quite a lot of space in my book, much more radical than the American Revolution, I think, I'm sorry to say, that featured politi uh, political rupture, but not so much a legal revolution or not such a profound legal revolution as the French Revolution. Perhaps because of where we are right now and what is happening around us, I think that uh, the most outstanding and potentially frightening feature advanced by the Enlightenment in the field of law is this idea of self-evident truth that is first expressed by legally by French by American revolutionaries that are taken by the French, but in fact existed in writing of the Enlightenment thinkers from before. You know, according to some people, the idea of self-evident truth is something that originated maybe in the 16th century formation, maybe in European colonialism, maybe the scientific revolution, but it clearly comes forth in the 18th century Enlightenment and was heralded, as I said, by the American and French revolutions and since then by many actors, to the point that now it is an axiom. We believe that there are such things as self-evident truths. It certainly was a useful moment that produced results that we mostly agree with, but like all other revolutionary ideas, it could also bring about detrimental results. 
and I often think about it these days, this is why I want to mention it. it's not in my book, but I think that in the end, self-evident truth is a regime in which, in fact, you don't need any kind of proof or corroboration that what you believe is in is true. There's no, if, if things are self-evident, you don't have to prove why they are the way you claim they are. But you also don't need any expertise because self-evident is evident to all equally. So as a result, I often wonder whether this principle of self-evident truth is not partially responsible to what we witness today, the attack on truth, but also the attack on expertise. And this idea that I think therefore I, I am, well, I think therefore I'm right, right? So I understand the wish to question authority and I certainly sympathize with a lot of it. But you know, from my own perspective, I hope there were ways to do it without diminishing the idea of proof and expertise. Anyway, all this development leads us to where we are now. And just to quickly summarize the continuation, I think the 19th century uh, brings about attempts to first rationalize and systematize the legal order. There's a great demand by the growing middle classes that law would become certain, known, controllable, but also because states grow in power and faculties. And if in the process, of course, law begins, becomes again a field for professionals because as you rationalize and systematize more, you, you need an amount of knowledge and sophistication in order to engage in these debates. The 19th century also brought about, despite the so-called national character of the law, the adoption of laws of one country by the next, what we call legal transplantation. This is very clear with the movement for codif to codify the law codification, but also other phenomena. Uh, so there is a renewed type of universalism in the 19th century, again, based on reason, but also a renewed influence of European law globally. This is a period in which the French code or the German code are uh, adopted by countries, willfully by countries in South America, in Asia, in Africa, and in Europe. I think the 20th century further accentuates these processes with the creation of the European Union, which I speak about in the book, but also with the question of globalization, the growth of international organization, international law, uh, the appearance of multinationals who actually make the rules, whether national states like it or not, and so forth. As you said, it's really hard and unfair to the book to summarize, but if I had to tell the story of law in Europe very briefly, it would be this story about a different technique changes over time and a struggle between different groups as to who's going to control the faculty to say the law. That was an extraordinary summary. Um, of course, this barely scratches the surface. This is a top level overview of the main contours of your history. But your book drills down into much greater depth, expanding on many, many topics we will not be able to get around to today. And of course, many topics that you have touched on or will during our conversation today, such as codification, are fleshed out in extremely informative and interesting ways in the book. So I urge any listeners who are interested in the subject matter to purchase this book. It is an extremely informative read that goes far beyond anything we're able to cover today. There are two central concepts in your book that I think deserve further elucidation. First, can you talk us through the role of normativity in law? 
what does normativity mean as regards the law? And what role does the law play in implementing it? Second, and you've touched on this already, so we can keep this brief, but can you please help us understand the role of procedure in law? It is obviously a central concept, but I know there are nuances. I know that English common law's approach to procedure is different than continental laws. Why is procedure so important in law? And what are some of the most important forms that it takes? Uh, sure. So normativity, I use it in the book mostly in order to distinguish law from legislation, a distinction that is not always clear, neither in English nor in other European languages. Uh, so for me, the idea of normativity is an attempt to decenter legislation. We, when we think today about law, we think legislation mostly and a way to argue that the rules about how we can behave, should behave, must behave, are much larger than, than just legislation. It's interesting, not in English, but in other European languages, as you may know, law is a capital letter, the system, the legal system. We call it trois diritto, derecho, diritto, which actually means to do things the right way. So, and it's also actually in these languages also about rights, because in these languages, derecho is the system, derechos is right, direito is a system, direitos is right. So in, in European languages, there is a way to actually think about law as distinguished from legislation, but law as actually being about both the right way to do things, but also the rights that you have as an individual. We talk about it sometimes uh, in Jewish between an objective and a subjective facet of the law. The objective is the way to do things right. The subjective is how does it affect you? What are your rights within the system? So for me, this was important because until the French Revolution, law was everything but legislation. Very little space to legislation, not particularly important in most countries with variations against it was mostly what Jewish said, what we identify today as customary law, canon law, uh, was very important moral theology, the practice of the courts, there were a lot of legal sources, and all of them formed part of the norms that people had to take into consideration and obey. All these norms, all these sources were not hierarchically arranged. There was no clear list what you obey first, what you obey next. They were by definition harmonious. And in fact, uh, when we describe the tasks of jurists, mostly in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, though I think it continues thereafter, was to show that this is true, is to take all these different pieces and put them together, as they also did this puzzle that I like doing, and show that although they might, it may seem as if they indicated the different methods and conclusions, in fact, they all worked together. So for me, talking about normativity was a way to actually expand the type of sources that I consider in the book beyond the, the question of legislation and, and law, the way we think about it today. And that's very often what people use normativity for. Procedure, of course, is, is very different. You know, again, from the point of view of a jurist, we usually know that the harder task a jurist has is not to discover and understand the substantial rules, 
that apply to case. For example, what happens when you take my horse, going back to my horse example, I don't know why a horse, I don't have a horse. So uh, what happens if you take my horse and you don't want to return it? But that's fairly a simple thing to do for a jurist. The hardest thing is how to apply this rule. Which courts do you have to go to? What happens once you're in the court? Which proofs would be useful, admissible, strong enough, and so forth? That is, rather than finding the rules that, that might kind of solve the case that you have, what is really, really difficult is to connect this uh, general rule to the specific case that you have. Was, in fact, the horse mine? Did you, in fact, take it away? Did you, in fact, refuse to return it? How you concretize the general rule into the specific case that interests you is actually ruled by rules of procedure, proof and procedure, but proof in most systems is considered part of the procedure. It's not about the big ideas, it's about how you translate the big ideas into the nitty-gritty, and in the end, what we need in law is the nitty-gritty. It's not just the big ideas. So this process of concretization, of passing from the general question or the rule to the specificities of the case that interests you is controlled by procedure and procedural rules. So their importance are enormous. Actually, sometimes we see it in, you know, in, in, uh, in TV and, and films where they concentrate on, on what you say, how you prove your case. But in fact, this is part of, of procedure. This is true in all systems, in all times, but you're right that this is particularly strong in common law system. So I didn't really mention that much about how common law operated in my previous uh, response. Um, so let me say something now about the particularities of common law, which was one of the system of law that existed in England, became basically almost the only one in the 18th and 19th century, but not really even then. But we typified English law as common law. So common law evolves, as I mentioned before, as a system of royal courts. Basically, the king supplies a, a forum where litigants can go and, and receive remedy, solution to their problem. In order to do so, in order to be able to go to the royal courts and ask for their help, they had to have a special permit, something we uh, identify as a writ. This permit was be given by the king or his officials, and it basically would say the court should hear the case, giving the court, so royal judges who are royal servants, to hear the case of this particular plaintiff. So in a sense, the way common law evolves and what it guarantees is not so much substantive solution, what would happen once you get to the court, but rather it is a system of access to the court. Who is allowed to have his day of court in court and who is not allowed to have his day? If you didn't get a read, you couldn't go to the, law, to the royal courts. You might still file, find remedy in feudal courts, in ecclesiastical courts, in local courts, but not in the royal so the way we think about it today as jurists is also, so, so first and foremost, common law is a system of access to the courts. It's not about what will happen there. However, the king wants to control what the judges are doing because basically the judges are his long hand. They're dispensing royal, judge, uh, royal justice. They are doing it for the king. So the way the king controls this court is first is telling them, you do not hear any man unless I tell you to do so, the writ. 
but very often the reads also tell them how they should proceed. Not so much what the result would be, but you should hear the litigant, you should do this, you should give him that, you should do that. How you should act so that my justice, the royal justice, will be done well. One of the things that happens quite early in common law, though it becomes accentuated over time also, is the judges are not, not so much guarantors of a just result. They are more of arbitrators. They are passive rather than active. They hear the parties and decide which one of them proved this case better. So in theory, if a common law judge knows that there is a, an argument you could make and you didn't make, now it's different, but at least in the past, it was quite clear that he, and it was always a she, there were no she judges until you know, the last century, he would not tell you, he would not help give you a hand. He was not responsible for justice. He was responsible to sit there, be passive. And the only thing that the king, in fact, ensured people is that they would have the date in court. The judge would be neutral, the judge will hear them and will judge according to what is brought before him, not considering anything other. Very different than the continental role of judges. Judges in the continent eventually, and again, much stronger today, are charged with finding out the truth. That's why we have judges who investigate alongside the police. And in fact, continental judges can add and say, why don't you argue this? Why don't you do that? Again, this is very stereotypical, the differences between countries and moments but this is it. So anyway, all this in English common law, and this is grossly simplifying the process, led to the development of rules we now recognize as due process. They didn't have that name uh, from the beginning, of course, but these were rules who control how the case would be presented to the judge, what kind of uh, attention would be given, and what kind of neutral position, one could say, the judge would adopt. So there were rules basically who, who were to ensure that both sides would have the same opportunity to argue the case and the judge would not be affected by anything other than what he hears. Again, it was he then. So in a sense, procedure became a guarantee for fair play, even though initially it really wasn't about that. It was more about how the king controlled his, his courts. But procedure was also important in common law in other ways that I wanted to mention because at stake was really access to the courts, could bring his case to the court, to the royal courts, when you suffered a wrong and you wanted a remedy. Because the question was who had permission, jurists ended up arguing that in common law, the right, the ability to address the court was in fact a recognition that you have a valid cause, which therefore granted you rights. This is why we think about common law as a system of remedies and eventually of system of right. What do I mean by that? There's, for example, a famous medieval example about the right to inherit. So there is a story that we are told that in a certain moment, a litigant went to the royal uh, official and asked them for a writ, that is an order for royal court of common law to hear his case, because his parents' properties were taken after their death by a neighbor, were taken over after their death by a neighbor. So a neighbor invaded the property of his parents after they died. And the king or his bureaucracy gave a writ that says, you can go to my courts and argue against the neighbors who invaded the land of your parents after they were dead. 
in the history of common law, we say this was a moment in which the right to in inherit was recognized, right? Uh, because we gave you a remedy in uh, the court, it means that the king understood that you need a remedy, which means that the king, without saying it implicitly, recognized that you have a right to inherit. Because if you didn't, who cares that neighbors invaded your parents' deceased parents' land? So in common law, because of all this, the importance of access to the court and procedure in the court, we end up in the with the conclusion that if you have a remedy, you have a right, and eventually, if you have a right, you also must have a remedy. And again, there is a very famous case that I mentioned in my book about the right to vote, which was discussed in common law courts in England in the early 18th century. It arrived on appeal because the first instance refused to grant remedy to a person who was refused the right to vote, but suffered no harm. He suffered no harm because he couldn't vote, but the candidate he was going to vote for won anyway. So... He didn't vote, but there was no harm because anyway, his candidate won. And in a very famous ruling, the court, this is the early 18th century, says they have to give him a remedy, even if there was no harm done, because if they refuse to give a remedy, they implicitly will say there is no right. So if there is no remedy to somebody who was refused to the right to vote, it actually means that he has no right to vote. So they give him some... You know, small remedy, but they intervene and they actually say in their decision, unless there is a remedy, no, there is no right. So in this case, we're going to give a remedy, even though it really isn't unnecessary because the, the person's candidate won anyway. So this is how procedure is particularly important in common law courts more than in European, in continental courts, though, as I mentioned, it's always important and it's actually the biggest tasks uh, usually of, of lawyers, is actually procedure, not the substantial rule. Fascinating. Thank you very much. I know much of your work has focused on colonialism and imperialism. Could you talk us through the ways in which Europeans utilize the law, in particular the concept of natural law, during the ages of exploration and imperialism, as a tool by which to project political, economic, and cultural power? Um, sure. So, so the first thing has to do with something that I've already mentioned, how because of colonialism, uh, Europeans came to think of their law as universal. They had to apply it to non-Christians and non-Europeans. So they started to reformulate this law as universal. The jurists and theologians that were involved in this process that starts in the 16th century basically said that based on their life experience, their tra European traditions, European debates, they could identify a sphere of legality of law that could be applied equally to all European, all, sorry, all people in their condition as humans. So, from their experience, their knowledge, they can think about laws that would apply to all people because they're humans, independently of these people's culture, tradition, and so forth. They call this law natural law. Um, of course, natural law exists before, but this is how they use it in these particular periods. And then they say part of the law of nation, which is what we call today international law, has this natural law, so international law, the law of nation is built 
of agreements between sovereign units, between nations and, and states and monarchs and so on. But it also has an element which is because it's it, it's it's uh, rules that because they're common to all humans, they form also part of the law of nations, even though the nations haven't agreed on it or didn't even know about it. It doesn't this part of uh, of the law doesn't it's not based on agreement promulgation, but it is embedded in the nature of things, the nature of humans. Uh, so as I say, it's something that comes out of law tradition, starting with Roman law, of course, but this is the way it is utilized in the 16th century because of colonialism. What I find really interesting about that, that although these scholars argued that the norms they identify are indeed common to all humanity, of course, uh, and that it is natural law, but of course, their experience of what humans are and what is common to humanity was based on their own ex understanding, experience, and culture. Uh, so though they were looking for some common characteristic to all humans, in fact, they went back to their own experience. They could not be other than ethnocentric or uh, Eurocentric. So while we can all agree that there, there, is sure, there are surely things that are common to all humans in their condition of humans that are not dependent on tradition or culture, the way these particular scholars went about discovering it was greatly biased by their own understanding of of, of nature, of culture, of human societies, and so forth. There is a very uh, simple example by way, by how, how to show it. It's writing of uh, 16th century theologians who, who sits in Salamanca in Spain, called Francisco Vitoria, that many consider the founder of international law. He, for example, when he set out to identify what this natural law that is part of human nature and common to all humans in their condition of human includes, among one of the things he says it includes is the freedom of immigration. The fact that people can move from one place to the other and society has to allow them to leave and the reception society has to allow them to enter. What is interesting about it, not only that it sounds so strange given what had happened in the 19th and 20th century when we start having citizenship and closure of border, is that this right, the freedom of immigration, didn't exist anywhere in Europe except for Spain. And I actually studied my book on citizenship and, and alliance has to do with the study of the freedom of immigration in Spain. This was a particular experience which was Spanish, but Vitoria lived in Spain and he did not hesitate to think that this right would be a right that all human communities recognize. It was not true. They didn't, in Europe even. But he made it, maybe also because he thought it was a good rule, you know, he was trying to imagine. But anyway, he coined it as one of the uh, principles of natural law and imposed it to explain colonialism in a way that really represented his own experience uh, and European standards. This, of course, explains the observation of many scholars that indeed European colonialism engaged in not only conversion, but also acculturation, imposition of cultural and legal norms. But it also explains the observation of international uh, lawyers, for example, that many of which now argue that international law is not really international, it's Eurocentric, it's anchored in colonialism, and in, from that perspective, they're right. It also explains, for example, something else that happens today is the ongoing debates regarding human rights. Everybody 
agrees that there are human rights and it's part of natural law, that humans in their condition, humans should have rights, but there's a huge disagreement what they contain, which rights would be at the, in the status, sacred status of human rights. And one of the claims, for example, certain publics make is that the Euro European experience, for example, made the freedom of speech central. But not in all cultures and tradition, the freedom of speech was as important as bodily integrity, for example, or the right to life, whereby we kind of put them on the same level. There are many who argue this is just because in Europe, this was the big struggle, and this is what European jurists wanted to affirm. But, you know, we can think about it too with the American Bill of Rights. I always think about how it is also anchored in a particular experience of the colonies during the struggle for independence. This explains, for example, the famous Second Amendment, the right to arm a local militia. That's what the Second Amendment does. If you think about the setting in which it happened, why the right to arm a local militia? Because this is what the English authorities didn't allow colonists to do. Maybe if they had, we wouldn't have had that Second Amendment and the colonialists would argue for something else that the English government didn't allow them to do. But we're stuck with the Second Amendment because of the historical circumstances in which these natural rights that the Second Amendment says exists before it is enacted were written down. But what is important to me also as a jurist is that, of course, this elevation of European norms to a level of universality, the legal extension of European law overseas, perhaps justifies, surely, it's not perhaps, surely justifies colonialism, it's ethnocentric and so forth. But what is really interesting about it, it also puts limits on things. So law has this characteristic that it both enables and limits. So it allows certain things, but it disallows other things. And it certainly gives the colonize certain defenses. So it's a double-edged sword that ex enables exploitation, but also limits it. And I wanted to, in my response here, with a clear example, the question of slavery. So there's a huge debate about the difference between slavery in different places, and mostly the question of the different ways slavery evolves between countries of, that stick to the, to the tradition of Roman law, which is all the countries which I described where jurists are more interested in techniques than in solution, and common law, which is the system of royal courts in England. So according to this vision that many support, not everybody, of course, in countries that followed Roman law and Roman debate, slavery was possible, but it was also regulated by law because slavery is an institution in Rome and medieval jurists who do see there is medieval slavery, there's early modern slavery, uh, continue to develop this law about slavery. This law talks about how you become enslaved, but it also talks about how you end enslavement. So both the in and the out, and what are the rules for slavery? Common law, on the contrary, according to this narrative, doesn't have specific rules for slavery. They have, it has rules about other kind of servitude, but not slavery per se. And therefore the claim is when slavery is introduced into common law areas, such as the mixed colonies of the Caribbean and then the US, because there is no normative framework, locals adapt whatever they want, basically. They invent their own arrangements which very often end up being more severe and more dependent on local condition than what colonists in countries of Roman law ever did. So in a sense, the argument is that the lack of legal framework 
and the need to practice something without clear century-long debates about how to do it actually gave much more liberty to the people in power, uh, in this case slave holders, to do as they wish. Not everybody agrees with this theory, but it's, uh, I think, an interesting theory, and I see um, a lot in it. Thank you. That is fascinating. Obviously, uh, this is a matter of speculation, but could you walk us quickly through one or a few of the main ideas around the origin of law? In your book, you discuss speculations by Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and others, all of whom were speculating as to the origin of society. And indeed, it does seem clear that the law does likely emerge along with society. Could you walk us through one or a few of the hypotheses around the origins of the law? Uh, Sure. So, you know, in the earlier period, of course, uh, law was said to come from the gods or the god, depends uh, on the culture, right? Later on, of course, this justification persists, but others are accompanying it and are developed. Uh, One important argument, as I mentioned before, is the idea that there is a natural law, that if there is a law that is inevitable, it's part of human nature, and uh, it is basically imposed on us by our own nature. In both cases, both the case of of, uh, a law that is uh, religious based in a law that is a natural law, though uh, people who hold that this this is the source of law agree, uh, they completely disagree about what this law includes. So it's not enough to say uh, law comes from the gods or the gods or law is natural. You have to actually say, so what? So, so what does it include? And that's where the most argument happens. In the case of uh, law that comes from the god, at least we have perhaps some sources, scripture, we have authorities that can engage with deciding what it is, whether it's the priest or the clergy or religious leaders. So there is some kind of indication of how do you find the answer of what God created as a norm. In the case of natural law, there's absolutely nothing. We don't have a body of works that is recognized as canonical. We don't have people that are given the power to pronounce about natural law. Um, So it's really up to each scholar and their ability to convince the readers by either repetition through history, showing that everywhere this rule existed, this kind of proof, or by just doing common sense assumption, or eventually the only real uh, proof, as I said, is that it's self-evident. That's where we end, because they can't manage to find better proofs, basically. It's It's the escape of those who don't have. I remember when I went to law school, we were told, that when a judge says it is a well-known rule of law, you could know that he has no idea where it, or she have no idea where it came from, because if they knew where it came from, they would give a citation. So, so either from the gods or God or natural law, but then huge discussion of what does it contain. Another source uh, of law is the authority of the lawmaker. We say that sometimes we delegate in somebody the duty or the privilege, depending on how you think about it, to create norm. Um, This delegation can be theoretically free, as in elections in parliament, but it could be partially or completely free, as norms created by a feudal law or a king, right? And then uh, a fourth uh, way to create law is by agreement. Agreement among the people 
that are ruled by this law. The agreement can be explicit with some kind of plebiscite, or we all agree. If it's a small community, we all make an agree. Or it can be implicit, which is really, really important. Uh, the justification of customary law, for example, uh, is based on this idea of implicit agreements. Uh, the claim being customs as practices that persist for a long time. Because many people follow these practices and they persist for such a long time, they must have agreed to it implicitly or else they wouldn't have followed this custom. So the whole idea of customary law, also the justification is agreement, even though the agreement is implicit. There too, of course, um, there could be many agreements. And, and partly this leads me back to the importance of procedure, which is paramount in all this question. Because, as I said, even if law is made by God, God, how it is revealed by whom, when, in what way, are, of course, essential to validating the norm. That is the process or procedure by which the norm is identified. This is also true for, as I mentioned, natural law, but also for law made by authority or in agreement between community members. And, you know, we had a few days ago the ruling of the Supreme Court of the U.S. regarding DACA, and if I read it correctly, I didn't read the entire um, thing. I read parts of it. The Supreme Court decision regarding DACA was all about procedure. It is about what the administration needs to consider and the processes it should take in order to reach a decision, a decree, a decision to halt this privilege. And the ruling said that the right procedure would not follow. And thus the decision of the administration cannot hold. They didn't go into the question of whether the decision was good or bad, legal or not. The, it was attacked on procedural grounds and it is on procedural ground that it was stopped. Uh, but the same thing happens with laws we pass in parliaments. We know that parliament can legislate, but there are rules about how is, parliament is going to do it. Simple majority, big majority, one vote, three vote. And you can always attack a law because it was not adopted with the right procedure. So again, the importance of procedure but also, as I mentioned before, the importance of the authority to decide what the law contains is sometimes even more important than the original justification, I think, of where the law came from. Another two questions that I wanted to mention that historians, philosophers, and sociologists of law have asked themselves throughout the years is whether obedience is, is indeed based on a consent, whatever reason we agree, or whether it's based on fear and coercion, retribution, or a combination thereof, and which method is better. Another question that they ask themselves is, does law come a posteriori or can educate? That is to say, can law change habits or does it only come retroactively once the habits are done and the social change that happened and enshrine it to law? Or maybe combination both of and that's, of course, a very important question. Can law educate or must it follow changes? Can law innovate or not? And in a sense, it goes back to the question of where does law come from and why do people obey the law? It's fascinating that this, whether law can change or innovate social behavior, is even up for debate. Uh, that was part of how I interpreted your use of the word normativity in implementing laws, uh, I read, new norms can be created. And it would seem to follow from that that society would be altered by that new normativity. 
But of course, then the question arises as to why the laws were implemented. So I suppose one can always debate as to whether the innovation came from the law or whether the law just implemented uh, a change whose impetus was elsewhere. Uh, Fascinating. I have a question in my notes to follow up with you about English common law, but you've already given a good summary of this. Is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, the only thing that I wanted to say is is when I think about English and continental law, I think about them as partnering in a tango dance. That is, they sometimes go together, sometimes not, but they're never completely isolated from one another. They never there's like never lack of of movement in one towards the other and, and, and things affect from one place to the other. I think it's more clear the influence of continental law of Eng- on England is very, very clear until at least the 19th century. I think afterwards there is some influence of English law on continental law more than before. But anyway, I think it is a complex uh, relationship that is not obvious. Um, And I think partly this tradition that I referred to before as uh, insisting on exceptionality rather than commonness uh, makes England appear very, very different. But whether it is or not is, is a big question. Um, I think it is and it isn't, and it's more similar when you think about the techniques and the way of thinking and how history shaped law, then it is different. But you know, in the European uh, Union, this was one of the problems they had to create a common law for the European Union, because some people say it would never be possible because you can't keep, get the common law, the English common law, under the same umbrella as the various continental law, and other people said there's absolutely no problem. For me, in the end, the real difference between England and the continent is more about how centralized England England was, how powerful the English monarch was, and I know it's counterintuitive to everything we know about England, but in fact, I think it's because the Normans were conquerors and they imposed their will on subjected people, at least in the initial period, Uh, They obtained powers that no other monarch could even suspect. And in the story, of course, the Magna Carta, the early 13th century documents that many celebrate as showing the privileges and the liberties of the English. For me, it's just the contrary. It's it's an attempt by the feudal lords who accompanied the Norman conquistadors to England to try to stop the expansion of royal privileges. And they're not particularly successful. So if there aren't the same documentation from from uh, your continental jurisdiction, though there are some that are not that uh, distinct, it's because it wasn't the question, because the king was never able to uh, reach the same type of concentration. I think the English case is also interesting because the kings understood that the way to extend their power and control over the kingdom was by supplying justice. So in fact, the way to extend their jurisdiction, you know, uh, literally jurisdiction means jurisdictio, to say the law. So they had a very clear idea that authority, political authority, is often based on the ability to say the law. And the way they expand their jurisdiction from a very small center and project it throughout England is precisely by establishing a network of courts around England. So uh, they use the law for political ends from day one, and they do so very successfully, much more successfully than continental king. So that's the difference for me. Thank you. Your chapters on English common law are certainly a fascinating part of your book. Following the emergence of English common law, 
and the attempt to understand the way that it emerged differently from the continent uh, and why it emerged the way that it did on, in England and why it did not emerge along similar lines on the continent or put differently why it didn't follow more closely the continental pattern. Uh, it is a fascinating, fascinating uh, story. Also, I love the image of the tango dance. Anytime I think of English or continental law moving forward, I <laughs> certainly have tango dancing in mind. So thank you so much. We've already taken up a lot of your time. To wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything you are working on now that you would be willing to share with us? Well, you know, first, uh, normally, I think it's true for most of us, when we complete a book, the, or we always have a series of offshoots. What we did not say because there was no space, the question wasn't asked, we didn't know about it, we thought about it differently. You know, every time I finish a book, if I would re-begin it, I would do it completely different. And this is true for this book too, because this is a learning process. But uh, what I am really uh, thinking about right now is the question of orality and writing. Um, how do we translate action and words into documents that we hope would somewhat, somehow freeze them, make them certain, uh, most particularly when we do it about rights. Um, I'm thinking mostly about land rights. And there is a certain struggle in European history, and I think I'm going to choose Portugal this time as my center, though for me Portugal is an example of processes that also happens else, happen elsewhere, is how do you make property of land, cert certified, uh, make it uh, secure, uh, kind of in a, in a way that people would know whose land each land is. And it, what is interesting about Portugal that this process of writing down begins very, very early on in the early medieval period, which is very early, but it continues all the way to the 18th and 19th century but it never evolves into a new system of land registry the way that other countries have. And in fact, there is no certainty. There is no public record. It's, it's quite amazing what is happening today in Portugal, mostly in northern Portugal, but also in other parts of Portugal. So um, I was quite fascinated by this uh, struggle to fossilize and freeze rights by writing it down and why it fails. Because there is something when we think about rights and entitlement, we think about them as static but life changes and circumstances changes. So there is something counterintuitive with this idea. I spoke a little bit about it also with my book on borders where I first noticed this phenomenon that we talk about historical rights. This was ours for generation and we want continuity and want certainty, but we know the generation ago, everything else was different. So why would the right be the same? And how can we keep the rights written and fossilized when life changes so dramatically around us, when the basic assumptions are different, when basic rules of society and, and human interactions are so different. So I'm quite fascinated by that, both the writing and the oral, but also this idea of what you do with change over time when you want certain things to persist, such as your right to land. This land has been in my family for 16 generations. How do you do that? So, um, but I'm just starting, so I'm reading a lot of discussion mostly about what failed in 19th century Portugal, why they were not able to create a, a land registry that would be final and would give final an absolute title. 
but I've been looking at all the uh, processes of writing down that they were doing from the early medieval period. So I think I'm going somewhere there, but I'm just beginning. So I'm in this, I'm in this stage as I described of the little pieces of the puzzle. Uh, lots of questions, lots of things I don't know, but I don't have the image yet. I don't know where it will lead me. Who knows? The image of the puzzle is timely, yes. considering that many of us in these quarantine conditions have been spending uh, some time working on physical, actual yeah. puzzles. Um, <laughs> Dr. Herzog, your book is a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject, and I highly, highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Dr. Tamar Herzog about her 2018 book, A Short History of European Law, The Last Two and a Half Millennia. It's a wonderful book. If you are interested in the subject matter, whether an expert or a lay reader, I highly recommend it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Intellectual History channel on the New Books Network. See you next time.